Bible, let's turn to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, last week we started a portion of Exodus that's called the Book of the Covenant. It's sometimes called uh, case law. Uh, These are applications to very specific issues that Israel as a nation would have encountered in real life. Um, And so it's important to know that context because nobody in this room woke up and said, you know, I really hope I can go to church and hear a sermon on slavery. And yet that's precisely what we encounter here. So it's very important to recognize that, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. These are instructions that teach us something about the heart of God. And then in view of God's heart, how do we as His people live for His glory? Exodus chapter 21, beginning at verse 1, this is God's word. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever." When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these thing, these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help as we study it. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would grant to us the ministry and help of your Holy Spirit so that we would know you as you reveal yourself in the scriptures. Would you give us ears to hear? what you would say to us. I pray finally that you would again be willing to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. It is called the Book of the Covenant. It's it's basically chapter 21 through 23. These are all practical, real-life scenarios that God's people might encounter, either individually or as a nation. And so these chapters take the Ten Commandments and they are, in a sense, a spreading out, an application at ground level. In fact, the elders of Israel in the coming years are going to use this case law to help them decide and figure out how God would have them handle complicated situations. Now, we spent 10 or 12 weeks walking through the Ten Commandments. It shouldn't surprise us then that God wants to provide some more deep application for His people and their lives. One of the things you notice when you come to the Bible is that it is incredibly realistic and incredibly honest. 
You don't read very long in the scriptures before you realize that the heroes of the faith are really fallen human beings with flaws. You read about Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, and you get them warts and all. It's honesty. But in that honesty, that's actually one of the things that commends the book to us because it tells us this is clearly not a book about some heroes of faith, some grand big people who lived better than the rest of us. It's also not in itself a book simply designed to create an earthly religion. This is a book that has as its purpose one point, and that is to show you the living and true God. The Bible is realistic and honest, which is why you come to places like this and you recognize it seems to speak to polygamy and divorce, and it seems to speak straight into slavery. But we should be really clear. Honesty and realism are not the same as affirmation. Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant union. Two chapters after that, you suddenly start meeting people who have multiple wives. That never turns out well for them. But the Bible is also not afraid to speak of it and then likewise to speak into it. Marriage, again, is a lifelong commitment. We're not going to go much further in the Old Testament before we're going to find that God gives Moses instructions on how to handle issues of divorce. Jesus says, well, the reason that Moses did that was because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, in view of the condition of your hard heart, it was important That God should provide conditions to protect the weak and the powerless, the women and the children. And here you come to a section on slavery. Most of you who are American read that word and you are triggered with thoughts of African-American men, women, and children put on blocks and forced to serve. Human beings treated as property, as, as chattel. This is not the same system that you and I are thinking of when we come to this text. The Hebrew people are thinking of this word, abed. And they think of it not in terms of chattel slavery. They think of it in terms of various forms of servitude. It's a variety of economic arrangements, most of which are intended to be possibly beneficial for both parties. If... They're handled under the spirit of love for neighbor that's taught in the Ten Commandments. So while it is helpful to know U.S. history, and we ought rightly to grieve those sins of our nation's past, it really does not tell you much with regards to Ebed in Exodus chapter 21. The text before us tells us that we are to treat one another with dignity, that we're to take care of the weak, but the broader biblical principle that we find here is this. Those redeemed by God's love must be servants for life. So today in our text, we're going to look at male servants, female servants, and then finally Christ's servants. So the passage begins with instructions to male servants. And and as I mentioned in the next several chapters, there are applications to the Ten Commandments. It makes sense, doesn't it, that God would begin in the place where the Ten Commandments began. 
with the issue of slavery. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God says, you remember what it was like to serve under Pharaoh? He treated you with cruelty. I'm the God who treated you with kindness. So therefore, as my beloved redeemed, you are not to turn and treat one another as Pharaoh treated you. You're to treat one another as I have treated you with kindness. And the rules that he gives are so clear that within the nation of Israel, there could have been nothing found similar at all to the U.S. form of slavery under the antebellum period. Nor would there have been other forms of slavery which have existed since early times throughout the rest of the world. What does the Bible think of chattel slavery? You don't have to skip very far. Same chapter, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Same law is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. Likewise, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he lists that someone who takes another person captive and sells them into slavery is included in the list of all these other lawless, disobedient sinners who are actually bound for hell. In the ancient world, people might come into a condition of slavery either as prisoners of war which would, in most parts, subject them to all kinds of cruelty, men, women, and children. And God says, I'm forbidding all forms of cruelty. And yet, given a fallen world, God seems to acknowledge that there are circumstances that may, at times, lead a person into servitude which is really what we're talking about in this particular text. You might think of it as fair labor laws. Verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So the first thing you notice is when you, Hebrew person, buy one of your own people. This is not a a race-based system. So you imagine, what are the scenarios in which this might happen? Well, the first and biggest one would be debt. If a person gets himself into trouble with creditors, he can't pay off what he owes, but he has another person that he knows that would be willing to pay off his creditors, he might say, well, I could go and work for him for a time. Listen, would you pay off my debts? I'll come work for you. Later in this same section of Exodus, we learn that a thief who steals something and is later found in possession of stolen property, but he's already gotten rid of it and can't return it, that person who can't make restitution should, in rightful obedience to the law, come back under servitude to the person who he stole from. It's actually a brilliant system. Don't steal. You'll end up serving someone else for the next six years. Other occasions where this might become necessary. A person born with very few prospects in this life might sell themselves to a person who might be able to teach them or provide for them a skill or trade. Imagine that you're a young person, 12 or 13 years old. Your parents die in an accident and you're left with no other options. How am I going to take care of myself? 
with food and shelter. I have no usable skills. Nobody wants to hire me. Well, here's a system where you might say, well, the potter over there has a skill of pottery, and he will feed me, and he will give me shelter and a roof over my head, and he'll teach me pottery. On the other end of this arrangement, I can leave. See, my point is that slavery in the Bible is a servitude which is entirely voluntary. And so God doesn't address the slave. He addresses the person who's doing the buying. He says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Second thing you notice is the whole system begins by limiting the time, which guards against a person taking advantage of a bad situation, locking you into lifelong cycles of slavery. And God's law is so beautifully woven with the Sabbath principle. Just as in creation, six days God works and then the seventh day he rests, so in this principle you must work for six years. In the seventh year you're free to go. Of course, you remember also that the fourth commandment requires that those who serve within your household are also free every single Sabbath day to enjoy the same blessings of rest and worship that you enjoy. person might get themselves into serious debt and they have to sell themselves to service to pay for those debts but there is an end to it the debtor pays the lender the lender receives compensation for his money but then both the debtor and the lender are guarded from exacting too much payment or being taken advantage of and God is so wise That in this system, he also designed that a person who was coming to the end of that servitude would not be left to walk out on their own. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 13, he prescribes this. When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. It's nothing like the system of slavery which existed in the United States. That was a system that was intentionally destructive. But if this system would be handled with love for neighbor in mind, servitude in Israel was potentially constructive. It's not slanted to help one and hurt the other. It's actually designed for a world where there are no such thing as safety nets. There are no social security benefits. There are no unemployment benefits. Servitude in Israel actually leaves you with something to show for your years of work. Regardless of how you got yourself into the situation or found yourself in the situation, personal debt, stealing through any number of circumstances that you can't control, Who can control the death of their parents? Here's God's law, which so beautifully speaks into a fallen world so that something good can come from what would otherwise be a lifelong system of poverty. And even more than that, generational poverty. Here's a system where a person can be trained to become a productive member of society, which actually guards them from spending the rest of their lives in perpetual poverty. More than that, here is a place where there is provided a handrail to grab, to help you improve your own life situation. Take a look at verse 3. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
Again, the law tends to favor the servant. He leaves as he came in. Even though the master paid for his food, shelter, and clothing, and if he has a wife, paid for the wife's food, shelter, and clothing, and the children's food, shelter, and clothing, it's a costly endeavor, which is all meant to make sure that that this was going to motivate a heart of benevolence from God's people rather than foster a spirit of, oh good, I can enslave more people. Take a look at verse 4. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now, if there is any verse in the whole section that you look at, and it seems to have a slant of favor towards the master, it's here. But even this is not as unfair as it seems at first. Some scholars read this as if the master gives his wife a servant, Uh, Excuse me, the master gives his servant another servant in order to sire or produce children for the sake of additional service. I'm not totally sure that that even fits with the rest of the laws that are here. But even if that's what's meant, immediately in verse 5 and verse 6, you find that a male servant from a heart of love, both for his master and for his wife and children, can choose to stay with the master. He can keep his family together. Another possible scenario, and I think this is more likely fitting with the text, is that a master might have many servants in his household. Two of them begin to like each other. They desire to get married. Here's the slight protection for the master. So that a man who is in his sixth year of service cannot take on a woman as his wife who is in her first year of service. And then they together leave, and the master, who's covered all the debts, is left with unpaid debts. And yet, you read this and you wonder still, well, how could any of this be good for marriage? How could any of this be good for a family? I appreciate what one Hebrew scholar says, how this speaks to protect both women and children. He says this, remember that the husband and father in this case was usually a former debtor. If his servitude had served its purpose, he was now ready to become a productive member of the covenant community. Soon he would be able to buy his family and their freedom, and they would all be back united under his roof. But if he had failed to learn his lesson, he would soon be back in debt. And this time, his wife and his children would also suffer the consequences of his indebtedness. And so for the time being, the safest thing that would be for them is to remain under the care of the master. They're still a family. The woman and children are still taken care of in the master's house. But they are held there or kept there until the man is capable of taking care of them in a God-honoring way. In God's heart, you read a passage like this and there's actually so much care for the vulnerable and the weak. How do you apply a passage like this? As a believer... If you employ men and women in your business, then there is a sense in which the imprint of God's law should be reflected in your own employment practices. Do you treat people well? Are you using them to simply get what you can get for as little as you have to pay? Or are you considering and thinking through 
The fact that you want to help them grow, that you want to help them be able to support their own families. Here's some laws that actually tell us how a responsible Christian employer might treat those who are under his care. What happens if a man gets to the end of this servitude and he, and he says, I don't want to go free? If this was race-based chattel slavery, that would not happen. That would seem crazy. This is a completely different arrangement. Imagine that you've worked for your master for six years. He has taken very good care of you. He's taught you. He's treated you with respect. He's paid you very well during this service. He's also taken care of your wife and your children very well. Your master has turned and done you nothing but good. There's a variety of reasons why a man might decide to live with his master and to presume actually things will be better for all of us if we stayed together. So in that case, God's law provides this this ceremony of sorts to make something permanent. Take a look at verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then the master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the Uh, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. It's a ceremony. It's a ceremony that's pretty fraught with detail to make sure that nobody rushes into this deal. Before a slave decides that he wants to spend the rest of his life with this master, he's brought to the Lord. They both testify before God. It's the same thing as when I do a wedding and the couple are standing there, we say, before God and these witnesses. That is, we're here to testify to the pledge between these two. And so in the presence of others, an ear is placed on the doorpost. It's possibly on the doorpost of the place of worship. And that ear is pierced. An awl. That sounds brutal. What are we talking about? It's an implement with a sharp tip on the end of it. And it sounds brutal until you realize that probably most of the women in this room have had their ears pierced. And maybe many men as well. It's an earring. It's simply a mark. It's simply a pledge. Why? Well, the ear is the place where you hear. And so the symbolism would go something like this. I love my master. I want to stay with him. I want to stay with my wife and my children, and I pledge to listen and to obey my master. May I be pierced in my heart if I do not heed his voice with my ear. Incidentally, when you pull your ear away from this ceremony, your own blood is left marking the doorpost. And it's a mark that will forever testify to the fact that you have made a commitment. You've actually made a covenant relationship with each other. We're going to return to this ceremony in just a moment. But it is an essential ceremony to understand the New Testament and its use of the word bond servant. Those redeemed by God's love must be servants for life. So we've looked at laws concerning male servants. What does the Bible say about laws concerning female servants? This is a fantastic place for critics to drop in in one spot and go, see, the Bible is totally sexist. Of course, we expect this. 
But I think what you'll see in just a moment is that what's actually revealed here is a God who is good and his law is meant in every case to take care of the most vulnerable and the weak. And if you walk away simply with that, then you will have taken something rich and beautiful of God's character concerning your Father in heaven. Let me be really clear. It is no exaggeration at all to say that if God's Old Testament laws would have been lived out in national Israel, that this would have been, in the midst of a fallen world, the most just and merciful and compassionate society in all of human history, and the world you live in wouldn't even be a close second. It's worth noticing that when we jump to verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall, no, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. Now, why in the world would a father sell his daughter as a servant? The only possible reason is desperation. This is a world hard for you to relate to. Hard because it's a world in which genuine poverty is a reality. And it's hard to understand that this is a real-life scenario in the ancient world. A father literally cannot feed his own family. And so he has to sell his own children into servitude in order to exchange for food and shelter and clothing. And let's be really clear. Verse 7 doesn't say, God would really recommend that you sell your daughters into slavery. No. The text actually says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Why? Because this might really happen in a world of deep poverty. So here are some laws to make sure that your precious daughter is protected from possible mistreatment. Now, why does God not allow her to go free after six years? Oh, that's sexism. You do not want your daughter to be exposed to sale on an open market. No, that would be awful. A father who loves his daughter might, in a, in a terrible pinch, entrust his little girl to a family member or to a close friend whom he really trusts, who he knows will follow God's law. He does not want her sold to pagans. Ancient world problems versus first world problems problems. It's the difference between I can't find my remote control or I can't literally find any food to feed my children. The Bible is honest and it is realistic. Israel isn't even a nation yet. But God knows that this kind of practice has been common in the whole ancient world. But unlike the rest of the ancient world, here's a God who speaks in to those problems with laws that protect the vulnerable from potential abuse. Now these laws, I think, would play out in two possible scenarios. One scenario is that the young girl is simply being sold to serve in another family. At minimum, her basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing would be given. Something her father can't do. The other scenario, and I think this is far more likely in a world where dowry payments are expected 
from the father of the bride. Here's a man who cannot even afford food. He certainly cannot afford a dowry payment. So his young daughter might be sold for a time in service. And then later she could be taken as a wife or a concubine. These are real life realities that seem so foreign to us. But biblically remember the only difference between a wife and a concubine is that a dowry is paid for the wife. A concubine is a wife with no dowry. You remember Jacob. Genesis chapter 29 Incidentally, Jacob works for a very similar arrangement in order to win the right to these. But you also remember that Jacob walks away with Leah and Rachel as his wives. Leah and Rachel have servants, and Jacob goes on to marry Zilpah and Billah. And they are taken as concubines. And yet they have the same rights. Now, of course, that was given long before God's law was given to his people, but it's telling us that that's the practice in the ancient world. There are some scenarios in the text that that a woman could be set free from her service. And the first is in verse 8. The man has designated her for himself, but then for whatever reason he doesn't want to marry her, then she can be redeemed. That is, a family member can come and he can purchase her out of her servitude. And the other scenario... If a man took a servant to be for his son a future arrangement of marriage, verse 9 says that she is not a servant forever. At the moment that you give her to your son to be a wife, then you need to start treating her as a daughter inside your household. She isn't forever the servant to dust and clean. No, she's a daughter. Verse 10 and 11, it's another guard against potential mistreatment by a fickle man. Look at it. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So you see that a law seems here to tolerate the concept of a second wife. How in the world do we understand this? We understand it the same way that Jesus explains divorce. It's an accommodation to the realities of a fallen world in which they live, in which sinful human beings exist. There's no celebration of polygamy. There's no celebration of slavery. There's laws that govern the messes that people find themselves in. Douglas Stewart was a seminary professor at Gordon-Conwell, and he says it this way. The covenant law tolerates second wives, whether servants or not, but only if they were treated equally in the family the way that the first wife is treated. In other words, a second wife cannot be a second class wife. She is due equal rights of food and clothing and sexual relations, which is what it means by marital rights. In other words, the husband cannot use her for his own selfish motives, but rather for her enjoyment, for her good, for her well-being. If he doesn't, then the woman can go free. Now listen, I'm not trying to cast these scenarios as if they were ideal. There is no interest in trying to gloss over a fallen world with roses. But I want to make certain that you understand that we should not read the Bible 
with the distorted lenses of our own nation's history. I appreciate the way that Kevin DeYoung told this to his congregation. He says, this is giving someone who's absolutely destitute a second chance in life. I don't know where to turn. I'll sell myself to a fellow Hebrew. I'll be a slave. I'll work for him. And then I'll get a chance, a second chance at life. We've talked about laws for male servants, female servants. But then how does the New Testament carry the heart of God forward on this issue? Let's talk about Christ's servants, and this is where we'll close. By the time the New Testament is written, slavery is still in existence in the ancient world. How does the Apostle Paul, how does the early church begin to understand it? Well, in in one sense, the gospel of Christ begins to tear down every dividing wall that existed between human beings. It, It tears down gender and class and employment and race and everything. Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither slave nor free. In other words, all believers are equal in dignity and value. But then he says, more importantly, no matter who you are in Christ... You're an adopted son of the living God. You're a brother or sister to the Lord Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2. You're a brother or sister to every other believer in Christ. Philemon was a wealthy slaveholding Christian who lived in Colossae. He came to know the Lord Jesus through the ministry of the apostle Paul. By the time Paul picks up a pen to write to his friend Philemon, he is imprisoned in Rome. And there in Rome, he has met an escaped slave whose name is Onesimus. Can't tell exactly what happened, but it seems most likely that Onesimus, before his own conversion, stole money from Philemon and took off to the large city of Rome where he thought he could hide forever. In God's providence... Onesimus comes to know the Apostle Paul. And Onesimus comes to know through Paul the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is brought to saving faith. But you remember, don't you, that Philemon was robbed. And so Paul pens a letter to his friend Philemon to receive this man back. In fact, he's sending him back. Not as a man who stole money but as a brother in Christ. I give all that background, not simply to tell you how slavery was treated in the New Testament, but to tell you that a slave in the Old Testament, Ebed, is translated in the New Testament with the word doulos. So Onesimus is described as Philemon's doulos. But more importantly... This is the exact same word that the Apostle Paul begins to use in his description of his own service to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his master. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God. And in that phrase, what the Apostle Paul has done is he has taken the full substance of Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, and he's applied it to his own heart. He says, I love my master. I will not go free. Therefore, I will bear in my body the marks of my desire to serve him. 
from a heart of love. 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul repeatedly talks about wearing in his body the marks of service to the Lord. What makes the Apostle Paul so ready and willing to live as a bondservant of Christ? Well, it's the same encouragement, the same motivation that summons you and me to live in servanthood to Christ. You are made Christ's servants because your master has made himself a servant. In a sense, Jesus' ear was pierced. It was from a heart of deep love for his father that he willingly obeyed his master, his Lord, his God perfectly. So perfectly that Jesus... Your master and mine willingly laid down his own hands and his own feet so that they might be bored through. So that your heart would be pierced with the love for your master. And you would by faith lovingly surrender to serve the one who lovingly served you whether in life or in death. Pick up your bulletin. Heidelberg Catechism. Question one. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, here's all the motivation you need. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life And here's your motivation. He makes me heartily willing and ready now on to live for him. There's slavery. Christ became a slave to move your heart that you might serve him. Those redeemed by God's love must be servants for life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word.